right. Um, while he's up here, before I pass it off to him, we'll read the scripture. So if you could join me in turning to Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. It is a prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all genera generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You guys are so kind and cool. Thank you so much. I really have really enjoyed my time here. Like, uh, I often preach and help at churches like maybe once a month, and so doing it five weeks in a row was like, oh, that's going to be a lot. Um, but it really hasn't felt like that. It's felt really wonderful, and you guys have been really kind and warm, and so I'm so grateful for the time that we've been able to be here. So thank you, honestly, for, for the team, for the staff, for everyone that's been kind and encouraging. It's been really fun to be here this summer, and hopefully, yeah, I'll be back some other time in the coming years. So uh, today, we're going to start a new series that we're calling Recharge, and it's tailored especially to this sort of season in the calendar year where summer is wrapping up, where school might be coming quickly for some of us. Uh, and so the next three weeks are kind of messages that are designed to help reorient us, recharge us, even if you will, prepare us to enter this new season on a good footing. I don't know if you guys ever feel this way, but at the end of the summer and like things are, you know, going back to maybe for us, some of us who have kids, this somewhat busier season, it could just feel really exhausting and sort of overwhelming. And so the hope would be that this series, wherever you are, might be a little bit of a, a booster and encouragement. Uh, what was read earlier was a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And this morning, I just want us to study this prayer, to dissect it, to reverse engineer it, if you will, so that we can learn to continue, continue to learn how to pray, which is kind of what we were wanting to do a bit in the Psalms, but also we can continue to learn how to more faithfully follow Jesus and explore what it looks like to follow him. So even if you're not someone who's a follower of Jesus, if you're just checking things out, I think this will be a good message for you as well. We'll probably answer at least one question I'm guessing most of you have about uh, Christians, what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, I'd love for everyone to be able to follow along if you'd like, if you have a Bible or a Bible app. Again, we're in Ephesians chapter 3, verses, beginning in verses 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, no problem. All the scripture is going to be on the screen. But if you want us to join, want to join us by looking at that while we're going through it, we'll be here almost exclusively. So uh, I imagine most of you are probably familiar with the concept of reverse engineering. Uh, if you're not, for some reason, if it's when you take apart something uh, or break down a finished product in order to understand it, to build a copy of it, or even so that you might make like a more improved version of something. Uh, it happens in a number of contexts. Hardware companies, right, they, they take apart products, electronic products of their competitors to figure out how exactly they're putting something together. Car companies take apart the models of other car companies to learn certain innovations. I remember there was a European car company that got in trouble because they were like renting a car and like taking it all apart and putting it back together and like giving it back and then they realized they were doing this and they were, yeah, it's just interesting. So uh, writers might diagram other writers' sentences to learn how to write better. People who do software, you know, software engineers might examine other people's code. Dancers might even, you know, look at the video of another dancer, like maybe you ever Google how to moonwalk, you know. Wouldn't it be awesome if I just moonwalk right now? It's not gonna happen. 
but for me, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a writer, I'm certainly not a dancer, so I mostly reverse engineer things like Googling how to make Olive Garden breadsticks. <laughs> because I'm classy like that. Um, you know, I know you guys have all had some unlimited soup and salad at some point, soup, salad, and breadsticks. Don't act like you haven't. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples of all time, though, of reverse engineering happened in Japan with the development of trains there and the rail systems in Japan. Uh, my family lived in Japan for a few years, and the train system in Japan, if you've ever been to Japan, you just realize is like orders of magnitude better than ours. <laughs> uh, and this all started, though, in the mid-1800s. Uh, the Industrial Revolution is happening in the West, and many countries are trying to incentivize Japan into opening their country to trade and to import Western goods. And so these countries, Western countries, wanted to sell new products and technology, and they also wanted to be able to access raw material from Japan. And so uh, Japan at that time had been closed off really to the world, and the US sort of forced them by sending Commodore Perry, if you're history buffs, to uh, send warships to Japan to sort of force them to trade with the West, uh, which is a really interesting way of making a trade partner, but you know, it is what it is, it worked. Um, other countries followed suit and essentially forced Japan to trade with everybody. So it's kind of an interesting history there. Uh, but one of the things that would basically happen is a country would send a few ships to Japan with all different kinds of products that they would have that they were building in their country that they were hoping to export to Japan, and they would send them there and try to convince the Japanese uh, governing officials that they needed these things and so they would buy them or trade for them. And one of the major innovations at the time is the steam locomotive engine. And so different countries are sort of competing with one another to try to get Japan to purchase their trains and their railroad products and their technology. And so the Dutch sent over like a manual where you could sort of illustrate all the different technology that they were making. Uh, the US and Russia like one up them and they sent like a miniature, like fully functional steam locomotive engine like on a ship uh, to demonstrate the technology with like a little rail loop they could do. Uh, They're hoping to create this like long-term customer with these, uh, to buy these trains and rail systems. But the Japanese are like super cunning about this whole thing. Maybe they're bitter about being forced to trade, I don't know. Uh, the Japanese though, they, these, they had a couple innovators that basically reverse engineered the American and the Russian trains. They studied the Dutch manuals, they even invited some British engineers to help them build their first rail system themselves. And the Japanese learned from these various models and countries and in just about 30 years developed not this like robust rail partnership with the West, but their own trains and rail systems that are really superior. So if you go to Japan today, it's like literally unquestionably the most advanced builders of rail technology and trains. They have bullet trains, the Shinkansen, they have trains that use magnetic levitation. It, it really is incredible. The trains are super clean, just like here, right? Um, <laughs> I know that's not a technologist culture, but anyways, but all of the major cities in Japan, they have like, you know, really robust uh, subway lines. I lived in Japan, and it's just incredible. You know, the trains, they measure lateness in seconds. Someone gets on, is like, I'm so sorry. We're late seven seconds. Please forgive us. You know, exactly like San Francisco, yeah. <laughs> so the Japanese, they studied the Dutch, they studied the British, they studied the Russians and their train companies, and the, but they built their own trains. They reversed engineered, and they built their own contextually appropriate versions. And, and this is actually kind of a metaphor that I wanna use as we examine the Bible and the prayers in the Bible. That they're both like designed to be something we could just use, we could just take it and use it ourselves, but they're also made for us to study, to copy, but also to teach us how to stir up our own faithful adaptations and innovations. And so we're gonna try to break down Paul's prayer in Ephesians, we're gonna try to reverse engineer it this morning so that we can better understand the content of this prayer, yes, but that we might also be able to pray ourselves. Like we might model not just the, the prayer, but, but the, the act of praying together. 
And so first, I want to read the content of Paul's prayer. I'll read it again. I'm going to read the first six verses, though. This is Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Paul says this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Uh, one of the first things we need to understand about this prayer is that it's linked to the previous section. We haven't been in the book of Ephesians, uh, but it's linked to this previous section, which Paul is basically explaining the gospel message and how God is using the church in the world to, to further this message to the ends of the earth. And this is a prayer for the church in Ephesus, a prayer for people who are already believers and followers of Jesus. And Paul was someone who was involved in starting this church. He was invested in starting this church. And now he's kind of advising them and praying from them from afar. So he's kind of checking back in with this church he helped start. He's sort of praying for them from afar. And he's praying for the church and believers there. But there's something that's really interesting about this prayer when you study it. It's almost like a tension that's kind of interesting if you read it. Because most of the things that Paul prays for are things that Christians should basically already have. He, he's asking for things that are sort of essential to what it means to become a Christian. So why would Paul ask God to give the people something that they should already have? Like, that's sort of the question that arises, at least in me when I study this. Like, why is Paul praying for something that these people should already have? Uh, let me outline Paul's prayer to explain. Basically, Paul's praying for five things. This is sort of the outline of the sermon. We'll go through it once, and we'll go through it again. But Paul's prayer for the church is that they would, number one, be strengthened in their inner being through the Spirit. Be strengthened in their inner being through the Spirit. It's basically a really basic part of what it means to be a Christian, that God's Spirit would come into our lives and then awaken us, that through this spiritual awakening with the Spirit, our inner person would be transformed and reconciled to God, and we would be made strong by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's how the Christian life begins. Why is Paul praying for this to happen again in someone? Or number two, uh, Paul prays for the church that they would have Christ dwell in their hearts through faith. Uh, again, this is how the Christian life happens. Christ comes to live in someone's heart. When this happens, a person's reconciled to God, uh, and, this, and this begins with faith, not because of any special work that they're doing or any religious activities that they've done. This is like Christianity 101. Why is Paul praying for it again? Third thing he prays, he says, be rooted and established in love. He prays that the people be rooted and established in love. Again, is there anything more basic that he could pray for them? It's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It all begins with life. This story that the people believed begins with love. And why does the Christian need a reminder of this or need more of it? Paul, he keeps going. The fourth point, the fourth thing he prays is this, that the people would know and grasp the love of Christ. It's more about love. But isn't the beginning of, every, of everyone's Christian faith that they know the love of Christ? Isn't that how this starts? It's a little bit like Paul is giving like a too obvious reminder to the people of something they already should be, already should know, already should have as Christians. These are a list of sort of essential things that Christians would have when they first came to faith. But we get a little bit of insight, I think, into what's happening in this prayer when we consider the fifth and final thing Paul prays for. He says this, he prays that they would be filled with the fullness of God that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And I think the key is in this sort of fifth thing that Paul prays, that the Ephesians would be fully filled by God. 
Paul is not denying that the Christians already have the Spirit strengthening them or that Christ is dwelling in their hearts or that their faith is built on a foundation of love, which they know through Christ. Now, what Paul is saying, and this is really crucial, I think, that we understand, is that there are sort of degrees of experiencing the fullness of the Christian life. Paul is acknowledging in his prayer that there is a difference between knowing and having something and knowing and fully experiencing something. It's one thing to know. It's another thing to experience or abide in a truth. And the point here, and this which come on the screen, is that we need not just to know, but also to grow in our knowledge and experience of Christ's love and the Spirit's power. Because following Jesus, it's not just a one-time event, it's a lifetime journey. Maybe you've met someone, and this has probably happened to all of us, and by all outward signs, like they don't seem to be a Christian, like no aspect of their life seems um, to, to reflect some kind of Christian faith. Their behavior doesn't reflect the teaching of Jesus. And you get to know them in some way, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm totally, I became a Christian, like in 2005. And you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's like surprising. You know, I was, I was saved in this year. And you realize that they haven't really matured or followed through in their faith. And it's, it's in those moments that can be really clear that there is a difference between having a one-time experience of God's grace or growing and maturing and, and dwelling in that knowledge and experience. And Paul's prayer here is not just that we would know once, but that we would keep knowing and growing in our Christian life. Uh, let me give you an example. My, my wife and I, we have a number of, of friends who've adopted uh, and, and friends who were adopted. It's this beautiful picture, one of the most beautiful pictures of God's grace and the gospel like in our world. Uh, and, and let's imagine for a moment that you are a 10-year-old orphaned child. Birth parents are not in the picture. You live in a country without a foster care system. Your only life experience to this point is in an orphanage. You've been raised in, and then one day the people in the orphanage come in and they tell you that you have been adopted. Paperwork is final. There's a family that's coming to pick you up. And in that moment, you know that something is radically different, that legally you are different. At one level, you sort of know in your mind, I have parents now. I'm sort of fundamentally changed and different. And yet, you haven't fully experienced the totality of what it means to be someone's child. You don't know yet what it means to have a family who loves you and will always be there for you. You have knowledge, your legal status is different, you're no longer an orphan, but it will take time to fully experience and be transformed by your new status and relationship. That is Paul's point in this prayer. He is asking that God would not just give us the status of a son or a daughter, but he would give us the full experience of this new reality that you and I would fully understand the love of a new family, the love of a father, that we would be increasingly transformed and changed by this love, that fear or insecurity would be fully replaced by love and trust and the kind of confidence that comes when our identity is, is, is fully understood as a beloved child of God. And behind this prayer, I think, is this sort of tragedy that we have seen, that many of us have seen in our own lives. And yeah, you know, some of the biblical authors, I think, even question if what I'm saying is, like, possible here. But, but I think, and I'm not trying to be provocative here, but I think there is enough of the gospel sometimes that a person can believe to be saved. They, they believe just enough to be saved, but they don't believe enough to be really transformed. That, that we want enough of Christ to make us safe, but not enough of him to make us entirely new. I think sometimes we live in this uncomfortable tension. Sometimes it just takes time. Uh, but I think at our worst, you know, some of us treat God like insurance, like, like, but not like a father. Like we, we want him because we're in a time of difficulty or we fear something, but we don't want to have this lifelong relationship, transformative relationship. 
And maybe you, you are, you're not a Christian, and you still wonder, you know, like, why are there Christian hypocrites? Does anybody wonder this? I wonder this all the time. I watch the news. You must watch the news and wonder this, right? This is why. Either their faith is not real, it's just words, or maybe it's real, but it's terribly immature. It's stunted, it's incomplete. And when you see a person who is calling themselves a Christian, but very little has changed, you are looking at, best version of this, a once orphan child, but is, who is someone who's refused to let the reality of their new family fully transform their identity and their inner being. They haven't grown consistent in their knowledge of the love of God and the experience of his power. And so while they're technically not an orphan, it's true. They have received a new identity, a new name, Christian. They still live like an orphan. And I think that is what motivates Paul to pray here, that none of us, that none of us who have been adopted by God would live like orphans any longer. That we would experience the full knowledge and transforming power of our new identities and status in Christ. And so I want to revisit those five things Paul prays with this sort of new lens on uh, and dive into a little bit more deeply how fully knowing and experiencing these five things can lead to our transformation. So let's go through those five things again. Number one, Paul prays that they would be strengthened in their inner being through the Spirit. Uh, it's good to remember the context that Paul writes this in. He's imprisoned in Rome. He is facing persecution because of his faith. The church in Ephesus is a tiny minority in a culture that is largely indifferent or hostile to their faith. And yet Paul doesn't pray that their circumstances would be changed. He rather prays that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner beings. What Paul's trying to show us here is that a Christian has the power to face the pressures of the outside world because of the strength of their inner being, which is made strong through the Holy Spirit. This is a continuous process, a maturing process, one that the Christian should always be growing in, especially as we face new challenges and new circumstances. I wonder if you've ever been around a Christian like that, whose joy or whose love or whose contentment is not based on their circumstances or their challenges, that there's some other power or work in them, some other source of your strength, and it's just like amazing. Like they are, they are radically different uh, than what you'd expect for someone in their circumstances. Uh, when I think of this thing, uh, you know, this kind of person, this kind of Christian, I, I read this text, I can't help but think of Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. She's really an incredible woman. If you're unfamiliar with her story, it's one worth knowing. Uh, Johnny, she grew up in a very active home. Her father was an Olympic wrestler. She loved riding horses. She loved playing tennis and hiking. Uh, but tragically, when she was 18 years old, uh, Johnny was in a diving accident, and she nearly died. She survived, but was now uh, paraplegic. And so for the first couple years of her rehab, they were just very brutal. They, she describes them as being marked by anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, even substance abuse. Uh, at this time, Johnny was a believer, but she, but she wasn't experiencing anything approaching contentment or joy or peace. She described herself as having, having a knowledge of God. She had the Spirit of God in her life, but it didn't seem like it was helping. She remained depressed, and she felt like her life was meaningless. But then she began with the encouragement of some friends to study the Bible, and especially the character of God. She did a Bible study on the character of God. And God began to make sense of her tragedy and her circumstances. She began to be strengthened in her inner being through the Holy Spirit. And through this Bible study with a friend, uh, when Johnny was starting, studying the Bible, she found meaning in her suffering. And her friend said this uh, phrase that became for her sort of like an anthem to help, help her understand her life. He said this, that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's a hard truth, but it's something that was transformative for Johnny. And reflecting on this experience, she said this, that God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. 
God hated the torture, injustice, and treason that led to the crucifixion. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury, yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in me, as well as in others. Like Joseph, when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. She doesn't say that flippantly. Johnny was very familiar with suffering. But God has like radically used and, 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 and transformed her. She learned to paint holding a brush in her mouth. She wrote a couple best-selling autobiographies and over 40 books. Uh, she founded this incredible organization that has encouraged like literally thousands of families who are facing disabilities with their children. And after reflecting on 50 years of life and ministry, Johnny wrote this. She said, I don't think you could find a happy follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. I can't tell you how many nights I've laid in bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, oh Jesus, I'm so happy, so very happy in you. God shares his joy on his terms only, and those terms call for us to surrender, and in some measure, like his son, I'll gladly take it. That just like blows me away. Like, that is like in, absolutely incredible. And, and Johnny, she represents an inner life that has been radically strengthened in spite of incredibly difficult circumstances. Her life is an example of how we can hope for God to strengthen us when we face our own trials and difficult challenges. And, and I'm just saying, I'm telling you about this person. You may be familiar with Johnny Erickson Todd. He's just someone you can Google. But I would just say I've experienced since my own life. One of my, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but uh, just this last week I was in Arizona. I was visiting my family. And I have a mentor who lives there, uh, who's been a friend for over 20 years, who is a, a professor of mine at university, a, a Christian professor who helped me get involved in church planting. And um, he just had a stroke uh, a few weeks ago. And so when I was in Arizona, I got to visit him. And this guy, Dave, is like one of the most joyful people I've ever met. Like truly in my life, you say, who is like the happiest person you know? I would tell you it's this guy, Dave. And what's interesting about Dave is that simultaneously, he's the happiest person I've ever met. <laughs> And he also has faced more trouble and difficulty and suffering than anyone I've ever met. Uh, when I met Dave, he had just moved from being a pastor and a church planner to a professor because his wife had severely debilitating MS. Um, as I got to know Dave over 20 years, I watched him care more and more for his wife, Nancy. Uh, one very humbling moment in my life, I was, Dave was very physically fit. And I, once I was asking him, I was like, Dave, how do you stay so fit? And he was just, you know, I just, lifting up Nancy and like, taking her up the stairs and bathing her. I, I just, I probably just stay pretty fit because of how much I carry her. And I just like cried. I just like, I, I'm thinking sort in sort of fleshly personal terms, how do you stay ripped? And he is responding, I love and serve my wife so much that I stay physically fit. And so to see Dave, whose wife is um, f fully in a wheelchair uh, with only no use of arms or legs now, and him, he said they sat together and just laughed at God, one good arm between them. <laughs> Him in a wheelchair, her in a wheelchair. And when I visited Dave, I just thought, this is real, it's true. There's something transformative about the power of God in our lives. And, and, I, and I really do hope that you have a Christian in your life that can model that for you, the way that Johnny Erickson Todd did for many, the way that Dave and Nancy Smith did for me. I pray that you have witnesses like that in your life. Um, second thing that Paul prays, Second point that he makes in praise for the Ephesians is that they would have Christ dwell in their hearts through faith. They have Christ dwell in their hearts through faith. Uh, I think the key insight here 
is that God desires for Christ to, to live in our hearts, like not to visit, not to be an occasional person that we connect with. No, God wants to live, to dwell, to take up residence in your heart. He doesn't want it to be like Airbnb relationship. He wants like, you know, a home that he owns that he comes to at any time. And Paul's prayer here, it's simultaneously a prayer asking for God to do this and this sort of declaration that we have a responsibility to respond, to exercise faith, to trust. Uh, it's, it's a work that God has to do in us and a work that he enables in us to do in response to hospitably welcome him in. And I think very practically one of the ways that we can do that and practice this is just to spend time in prayer, in worship, in Bible reading. If that's new to you, I would just encourage you, open the Psalms, pray a Psalm, start there, and find a part of the New Testament to read and do that daily. Uh, we need to try to remind ourselves of the gospel message we need to do this when we are just living our normal life. We need to do this when we sin. We need to do this when we're discouraged. We need to find, when we find ourselves in a place of anxiety or stress, when we're tempted to sin or to dishonor God, we need to remind ourselves of this gospel message. It's a way we practice hospitality with God. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel and the one who dwells in our hearts. It's sort of like laying out a welcoming mat for Jesus, inviting him daily to dwell in our hearts, or maybe even more precisely, probably, it's a way that we sweep away anything that's blinded us to the reality that he already lives in us. We're reminding ourselves when we do that, that God lives in us. We remind ourselves of the gospel of the God who has reconciled us. And what is that gospel? Maybe I've, you've said that word a few times. I just want to quickly give you one of my favorite definitions of the gospel. It says this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Pastor Tim Keller said that. And there is a power in daily reminding ourselves of this. This is why Paul will go on to talk about love. He's connecting all these things together. These prayer requests Paul makes are all connected. Let's take number three and number four together, that we would be rooted and established in love, number three, and that number four, we would know and grasp the love of Christ. Paul writes this, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He's reminding us here of the centrality of love in the life of a Christian. He's reminding us of this gospel message. And Paul uses a number of metaphors to try to sketch the full extent of this love, uh, to try to, to help us define and see it in our lives. He uses an agricultural metaphor, right? He asks God to make us rooted in love. He uses an architectural metaphor he, that God would ground us or establish us like a foundation in love. And then he adds this sort of dimensional description, praying that God will allow us to know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth, the sort of uh, omnipresent directional reality that for Paul encompasses everything when he thinks about the love of God. It's, it's everywhere, it's everything, it's all about love. And I think this is one of the core messages of the Bible, that God is love. And when you think about the Bible and you think about the, the, the idea of love in the Bible, if you're familiar with it at all, you're often drawn to the book of 1 John, which means it's just all about love. It's when one of Jesus' disciples writes about the pervasiveness of love in the life of a Christian. And it's somewhat of a long section, but I, as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think about uh, this, this, this section in 1 John where he just talks about love and how pervasive it should be in our lives. And I really wish that this would be what we would be known for in the world, this kind of love. So let me read from you from 1 John chapter 4 and chapter 5. This is 1 John 4 through 7, 4, 7 through 10. And, he's, and this is John at praying, um, talking to believers. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. 
for love comes from God. Everyone who, is, who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son, and only son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John's going to continue. This is verses 16 through 21. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We have love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And then John continues in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus, Christ is the, is, Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. That is a lot about love, and I wanted to read it for you just so you could have just like another window into how pervasive the idea of love ought to be in our lives as followers of Jesus. If you spend time in the scriptures, you will see again and again that love is central and critical in the Christian story, and, how, and it, it gives us a model for how we are to respond to the love that God has for us, to radically love those around us. God's design is that our knowledge and experience of Christ would grow, and as it does, that our love for our brother, our neighbor, our enemies would grow. And as our love for God grows, so too does our desire to fulfill his commands. You even see that in that text where there's this connection between love and obedience. And so for the Christian who fully grasps the extent of Christ's love, that isn't living like an orphan, there is not a single person that we shouldn't be able to love, not a single commandment that we would be refusing to obey. Which brings us to the fifth and the final thing that Paul prays, that number five, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Kind of the key to understanding this text again. Paul prays that the people would know the love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And maybe you're already having an imagination of what that might look like. Maybe you've gotten a glimpse as you've thought about these texts or you've heard some of the stories. Maybe you've seen this kind of Christian maturity from someone you respect or admire or a friend that brought you to church. Uh, I tell you this today because whatever you are facing or whatever you are lacking, this can be, whatever that is can be made right when we are filled with the fullness of God. Whatever difficulty you're experiencing, whatever stress you're facing, whatever uh, obstacle you think, I cannot get through this, Whatever that is can be overcome when you are filled with the fullness of God. That is what Paul is praying for, that we would be filled with the fullness of the love of God, that it might look like, and here's just some examples that I thought of, a gradual elimination of fear from the life of the Christian. It might look like marriages being sustained and saved. It might look like racism and classism being pushed out of our community. It might look like generous care for the poor and for one another, giving up 
the, the rat race of earning more for ourselves all the time. It might look like a commitment to unity, to listening, to understanding. It might look like honoring God with our sexuality. It might look like the removal of, of doubt and of self-loathing and all, exterminating all kinds of pride in our lives. And when, I, when I say those things, doesn't that sound like a solid life? Doesn't that seem like the kind of community that you would want to be a part of? One in which we all have the normal circumstances and the difficulties of life, the pressures, but one in which our strengthening comes from within. That there is a God who is filling us fully, individually and corporately, strengthening our inner beings through his Holy Spirit, filling us so much with the love of Christ that it spills out into our everyday life, into our emotions, into our worldview, into our, into our relationship with our neighbors, and it changes everything. Current church, that is what I want for you. I want to pray that for you, and I want to ask you to strive for that, that, that no one here would live like an orphan anymore. And that might seem impossible that God would do something like that in your life. You might feel stuck right now. You might feel powerless. You might feel like Johnny Erickson Tata did, where I am just broken and stuck. But I think what's amazing is that is why Paul prays this prayer to God. And if you follow the logic of this prayer, it's this lofty prayer, but it ends in such an interesting way because we need God's help to do this. We aren't supposed to do this on our own. If you read the final section of Paul's prayer for the church, it's verse 20 through 21. Let me read it for you, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. That should feel like encouragement to us, that Paul is praying for God to do this in us. Uh, let, let me just really quickly run through kind of like the, the, the logic of, of Paul's final bit of the prayer. He says six things about God in that prayer. First, Paul says that God is able, that he is capable, that God is not weak. Second, Paul says that God is able to do, that God is active, he is not passive, he is at work, he's not just able, but he's doing something. Third, Paul says that God is able to do what we ask, that he is responsive, that he is listening to our requests. Fourth, God's, Paul says that God is able to do what we ask or imagine, uh, that, that God is not just at work, he is not just able to do something, but he's able to do what we even imagine, that's incredible, or what we dream. And then fifth, Paul says that God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. His power is greater than our requests and our imagination. And last six, Paul prays that God, it says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That's the quote. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I hope you catch that and it's encouraging, that nothing is beyond his capacity. Your wildest requests are too small for God. Your greatest fears are easily overcome by him. Your grandest dreams are nothing compared to his plan for you. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I believe some of us just need to have our imaginations like blown by that reality and to respond in faith as though that's true. And I recognize that that's difficult. I recognize that there are obstacles to this. But the text says that kind of at the core of believing in Christ, we're believing this, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I think that's what faith looks like in response to this text. And so I want to start with that kind of confidence when we pray. When we re reverse engineer and we pray our own prayers, I want to start with that kind of confidence that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And how does God do that? Paul also makes very clear that he does this in Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 21. 
It is in and through Jesus. It is through his death and resurrection that God is able to answer this prayer and every prayer. And this is not just something that God can do in response to Paul's prayer in the Ephesians, but it's something the text says he can do through all generations. This means it is something that God can do here today in our lives, through our prayers right now, right now in your life. And so together today, I want to really close the time of prayer, uh, prayers that we make with this kind of faith, prayers that we pray in Christ Jesus, full of confidence, not just for change in our circumstances, but for a greater inner strength to face the world, for a greater experience for each of us of the love of God so that we would be more faithful as we live as Christians in this world. Uh, if you're not a believer today, I, I still consider joining us in prayer. Pray that if this God is as real and as powerful as this text says, that he would reveal himself to you. Pr you pray that you too might experience this love and power. Uh, current church, I really love you guys. And I just, I, I want us to think for a moment, where do we need, where do you need God's power? Where do you need the knowledge of love in Christ to strengthen you? As you're just even thinking about this week ahead of you, where do you need God's help? Where do you need to believe in there is a God who is able to do far more abundantly more than we ask or imagine? And so I want to do this time of prayer uh, alongside our time of communion. I want to invite uh, the band up and the ushers up here. And uh, at Current, we do uh, communion about once a month. And the ushers are going to be in the four corners of the room. And it's a moment where you can walk over and get the individually packet little cups of juice and bread. And then come back to your seat. And take a few minutes to imagine and to pray something bold to God. I want you to be prompted by this prayer for Paul, from Paul for the church in Ephesus to pray a bold prayer for yourself or for someone else. And, and then once everyone has received their communion elements, we're going to eat the bread and the juice together. We're going to remember the death of Christ. That, that is what enables us to pray these kinds of bold prayers. And so if you want to get like ahead of time, you can like open up your little thing. Uh, in communion, though, I just want to say it is, a, it is a practice for those people who have their faith in Christ, who follow him as disciples. If that's new, if that's, if that's not you, if you're not there yet, uh, instead of taking communion, continue. Join us in prayer. Pray a bold prayer to God. Pray a, a, a prayer that if God, if you're out there, if, if you are who you say you are in the Bible, would you show that to me? Would you reveal that to me? Would you help me in my time of need? So let's go ahead, and we're going to begin our time of prayer and communion. We'll go ahead and go to the corners and grab that and come back to our seats. And remember the God who suffered on our behalf, who forgives our sin in Christ, who reconciles us back to God, and who enables us to pray bold prayers in faith. So let's grab the communion stuff. <laughs> 